welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the report which has been completed by US Sailing after the death of Colin Golder of New Providence, New Jersey, who fell overboard during the Newport Bermuda race. Now, as many of you know, I was competing in that race in a very different division to Colin's boat, but uh, the news of what had happened very quickly spread around the fleet, as you can imagine, and at the, the initial hearing of it, of course, there's uh, confusion as to how such a thing can happen, and of course, then the ever-present awareness that uh, this kind of thing hangs over everybody that chooses to go out onto the water. And the book that I'm reading in the Rare Nautical Reads uh, section at the moment, uh, Captain Thomas Crapo, that uh, other podcast that I do, um, I, I started to look up a little bit about him when I decided to do that uh, do that book, uh, the, the strange but true book, his adventures crossing the Atlantic, just him and his wife in a 20-foot dory in the uh, uh, mid-1800s, long before anybody else had done anything like that. And uh, I kind of got, as you, as you do online, you get the entire spectrum of someone's life all in an instant because you get to see both everything they've done in their life and their death in, in a couple of clicks on, online and uh, discovered that he despite being an extremely experienced seaman. He ran um, off to sea when he was about 14 years old. He was on ships all through his youth. Um, he was uh, up to being the captain of big schooners. He crossed the Atlantic in his 20-foot dory long before anybody thought that such a thing could be done. And yet, unfortunately, his end was to go over the side. And uh, the report that I said I saw when I first clicked on him um, it, uh, it indicated that he got caught up in uh, fishing lines or something and been dragged over the side of the boat. So someone, you know, hundreds of years ago, having exactly the same uh, fate before them as has happened now to, uh, to Colin Golder uh, in the Newport Bermuda race. And so this kind of accident is something which has always happened in sailing. Um, it's probably always going to happen in sailing. And our job is to try and guard against that as much as we can. And so taking a look at this report for me today is the beginning perhaps of uh, one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast, which is get Marine Accident Investigation Bureau reports from the UK, uh, anything that US sailing has done, and, uh, and go through them and try and see what, uh, what are the red flags that start going up, when do they start going up, how could they have been avoided, and with the intention being that from these accidents, from these fatalities, Something can be learned, something can be taken and passed forward. And so if those flags, those red flags flags start to be hoisted on board a boat that you're on, you perhaps have some idea of where that can lead if something doesn't change. You can actually save a, a terrible incident from happening by learning about things in the past. It's the only way to move forward. So using as much respect as is possible in the telling of this story but telling the facts and telling it as it's written down by the official investigation bureau from u.s sailing let's take have a look at uh, colin golder's story and see if in his passing there is something we can take from it which might keep others safe in the future so as a, a small intro to this i'll read the article which is from the newport daily news which is written by scott barrett uh, it was printed just on October 28th, 2022, about a week ago, and it gives a good overview. If you're not aware of this incident, the Newport Bermuda race goes every two years from Newport 
in Rhode Island on the American East Coast and runs about 630-odd miles uh, down to Bermuda. Um, it's a very famous race. It's been going forever. Um, it's uh, a, a, a shining uh, crown jewel for, for U.S. sailing, I'd say, each year. And they have done their absolute utmost over time to make it a safer event as possible, to the point that having done now three of them, um, going through the, the, the hoops and the uh, the requirements that are required to get into the Newport Muda race is a, is a thorough shakedown of all the safety systems and training on your boat. And uh, any boat that actually gets over the start line ha has already proven itself to uh, professionals that it is safe and that it is operated by someone who knows what they're doing. So uh, above all, we can say that US Sailing have done whatever they can to try and make the event as safe as possible. That Colin, who was the captain and owner of the boat, did everything he needed to do. And we'll see during the report that there's lots and lots of good things that did happen here that really uh, would have been the, the method of, uh, of uh, success had it been one. But there was a couple of things that came along which... Uh, may have been planned for couldn't be foreseen we'll get into those but unfortunately um out of the jaws of success this uh this disaster fell so um let's uh let's read the report here from from scott barrett in the newport daily news it says u.s sailing the national governing body of the sport on thursday released its report into the circumstances surrounding the death of mr colin golder of new providence new jersey who fell overboard during the newport bermuda race in june Golder was a veteran of the 635 nautical mile trek from Newport to Bermuda, but on the afternoon of June the 19th, he was, and this is in quotes, not wearing a harness with tether nor a personal flotation device that complied with the race's safety requirements, according to the 18-page report. That's the one from US Sailing. The seven other members of the crew of the 42-foot sloop Morgan of Marietta immediately enacted man overboard procedures and turned the vessel around. They connected him to the boat via a life sling that's uh, capitalized because that is the actual um, piece of equipment called the life swing, life sling rather than a ubiquitous uh, uh, piece of equipment that ha does that function. It was the life sling ones, the ones that we know uh, on the back rail of the boat with the square Velcro flap closed bag. Um, they connected him to the boat via a life sling, though had trouble retrieving Golder, who, according to the report, was 74 years old and estimated to be 5 foot 9 inches and between 250 and 300 pounds. He lost consciousness and died before he could be pulled back onto the report, the report says. Okay, and that's reported in the Newport Daily News. So that uh, then gives us a link through to this 18-page report prepared by U.S. Sailing. And I think um, we can, uh, the first part of it is just really um, introducing that, that we just uh, went through there, the, um, the, the, the general uh, situation uh, regarding this accident. Um, but then I think we should have a look at just what the Cruising Club of America and uh, the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club have got in this. It says, uh, the Cruising Club of America and the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club requested that U.S. Sailing conduct a review of this incident and provide a report and recommendations aimed at enhancing the safety of offshore racing. That's the key thing here, that the report and recommendations from this uh, enhance the safety of offshore racing. Now, for anybody that's been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you'll know that I'm very conservative when it comes to this kind of stuff. 
That's not to say that I'm always uh, on, completely on it when I'm solo sailing. There's bits where I take risks that others, others wouldn't, but they're ones that I choose for myself. But um, whatever can be taken from any accidents anybody has, including myself, at any time, can be passed on to the wider community, um, will help us get to what they're saying here. Uh, uh, enhance the safety of offshore racing. To that end, US Sailing appointed a panel of six sailors to review the incident, establish what happened, and make recommendations to reduce the likelihood of a future similar incident. So we've got Greg Miyareki, who's the chair of the Chicago Yacht Club, Ed Cesare, Storm Trisel Club, Andrew Clouston, uh, SVP Programs and Services US Sailing, Les Crane, the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club, Matt Gallagher, Offshore and Technology Division Chair of US Sailing, and Jonathan Kaback, CEO of Oliver Hazard Perry of Rhode Island. So apologies if I've uh, mispronounced some of these surnames there. Um, the panel interviewed all surviving members of the Morgan of Marietta crew, as well as Sabina Golder, Colin's wife. It reviewed the vessel's expedition logs. That's the uh, navigation software expedition. Uh, it reviewed the vessel's expedition logs and the yellow brick tracking record, as well as race documentation kept aboard the boat. It consults with experts in the fields of medicine, navigation and weather forecasting. And this report aims to summarize what occurred in this instance, outline our findings and provide lessons learned for the sailing community. And um, certainly as I've gone through looking at uh, the people that are on that chair, we've got some very experienced people here who really were able to bring some first-hand knowledge to the situation when uh, making this report. So um, it says part one provides a factual summary of events. Part two outlines key conclusions stemming from these facts. And part three offers lessons learned and recommendations aimed at making offshore sailing a safer sport for all who participate in it. Broadly, we found that the key contributing cause to Colin's death was his failure to wear a PFD, personal flotation device, a harness and tether. Given the circumstances, his crew acted properly in connection with the subsequent man overboard procedure. So good to kind of frame that at the beginning. We've got a basic idea of what happened and then um, the ultimate conclusion being um, kind of preloaded into this that uh, essentially what happened is that unfortunately when Colin went into the water his failure to wear a life jacket uh, led unfortunately to his untimely death. So um, the factual summary of how it went down. Now let's just just take a moment here obviously if I read every single thing of an 18 page report then we're going to uh, have a very long podcast on, the, on our hands here, although perhaps it's worth uh, reading it. I wonder if there's some element to this. I do do a lot of uh, reading podcasts where I, you know, reading books and all the rest of it. I'm not sure it's completely okay to just kind of read the US Sailings Report here, although I think they would say that uh, if it's for safety and to spread the, the word, then that's okay. But let's, uh, I'd love to get your feedback on how best to present these. I feel very much like I'm um, stepping on uh, eggshells when I'm doing something like this because I have so much respect for people that are involved in this and the people that investigated it and my heart goes out to those who are connected to Colin. I'm just very keen that we should uh, learn something from it and then Colin can add to the, continue adding to the sailing uh, community as no doubt he did in his lifetime. So we'll have a look at the factual summary because I think this is where once we know what happened we can talk more broadly about the situation. 
but we need to know where the red flags go up um, so that we can spot them happening on boats that we're on and, and stop it in its tracks before a similar outcome is reached. So the factual summary starts. Um, now I've just got a Morgan of Marietta in this um, uh, document is abbreviated to the capital letters M-O-M. So I just have to interpret that every time I say it for you. Otherwise, I'll be telling you about a vessel called Mom, which uh, maybe that, maybe that's what they called it. I don't know. Um, Morgan of Marietta started the race on June 19th, 2022. Colin owned and skippered the boat. Colin was an experienced offshore racing sailor, having completed in approximately 10 prior Newport to Bermuda races. Colin was joined by seven other crew members on a 40-foot boat. A crew of eight would be absolutely perfect. So we'll go just with the first names. We've got Sarah, Johan, Rob, Sean, Anne, another Anne, and Lou joining Colin on board uh, Morgan and Marietta. Two of the crew members were new to the vessel, and the others had sailed on the boat previously to varying degrees. Colin was very involved in preparing the boat for the race. In terms of actively managing the boat during the race, Colin relied heavily on his crew. As of the date of the race, Colin was 74 years of age and overweight. Estimates of his weight were 250 to 300 pounds at a height of 5 foot 9 inches. He rarely, if ever, went outside the cockpit while racing. So that's the first thing is, um, you know, we live in a world now where we have to be very careful with our words. But as a report says, Colin was over a, a weight which would be identified as being optimal for his height. Um, that brings with it a certain amount of reality, which we need to re-engage with on a daily basis. I remember talking to my mother when she was about uh, Colin's age here, 74 years old, and um, she's saying to me, I'm, you know, I haven't got any extra weight on me. And so I found out what her weight should be. You can imagine there's a very sticky moment <laughs> doing this with my mother, like, oh, I think you are overweight. And I filled up buckets uh, which, uh, with water um, to the same amount that she was overweight, which wasn't too much, but it ended up being like, two buckets and, uh, and then said to all that's that's the amount that's extra so the the issue that you've got in your knees the issues that you've got with um movability uh, mobility um they they come from carrying this extra weight so we have to whilst it's really important that we choose our words and we live in a world now where that uh, people are very sensitive to that we do also have to recognize that the sea will exact the full penalty for any mistakes made and if the, your issue is that you've got extra weight on, then that will be the thing that comes along and uh, becomes a problem for you. Because the reality is that if you've got loads of extra weight on your body, very, very few people are as aerobically fit, um, as flexible and as strong as they might otherwise be if they're carrying lots of extra weight around. However it gets on there, whatever your plan is to get it off or keep it or you love it or you hate it whatever that's all subjective to the individual but objectively uh, mobility speed of mobility aerobic ability will all be affected by having lots of extra weight on so if you get pushed into a circumstance outside your normal comfort zone then suddenly you may not have the ability uh, to save yourself in the way that you might expect okay that's just how it is so uh, this also on a 42 foot boat would mean that Colin didn't go out of the cockpit so much. So he's probably a bit of a cat when he was in the cockpit and down below, but um, he didn't have the mobility at that point to move around on the foredeck safely. So he was restricting himself to getting the boat ready, getting the boat where it needed to be to get into the race, which is a huge job in its own. Having done it a couple of times, I can tell you that's an absolute nightmare. So well done to him for getting that done. But then when he was in the boat, he knew that staying in the cockpit was the best 
for him. Um, unfortunately, when he then got thrown, not just clear of the cockpit, but clear of the boat and into a very uh, difficult circumstance, uh, his weight then was acting against him. But what I will say is that at 250 to 300 pounds, not having a life jacket on, um, you know, the extra body fat that he was carrying would keep him closer to the surface of the water. It'd be heavily muscled, uh, very, very um, dry athlete type bodies would be the ones that would be difficult to, to float naturally. If you've got some extra uh, pounds on you that can be very very useful for keeping at the surface of the water so although going into the water was for him um, rendered a very dangerous situation because he hasn't got a life jacket on he did have this weight um, which would keep him at the surface and that's just again that's an objective truth uh, whichever way you want to look around it might not necessarily keep him face up in the water and we don't know yet how how difficult his time in the water was um, before they got the life sling to him but um, you could still get mouthfuls many mouthfuls of water and really be struggling um, to to keep uh, your you know orientation but um, certainly if you've got some extra, extra fat on you that can help when you're in a in a wet situation uh, well a floating wet situation at the start of the race continues the report uh, the Morgan and Marietta was sailing in approximately 15 to 20 knots of wind out of the southwest. The boat got pushed over the starting line early and had to circle the race committee boat and start thereafter. I bet there were a few uh, uh, grumbles and groans on board when that happened. Uh, Lou, who is mom's navigator, advised the crew at the start that they should expect winds in the 20 to 25 knot range with possibly higher gusts during the race. So when we go through that 20, 25 knots, you know, that's uh, almost a perfect um, um, weather report for this kind of event. Uh, it's the kind of range, uh, the kind of wind range where a lot of boats can really power up. Um, they can do a lot with that, uh, particularly if you're running away from that kind of wind, which uh, I'm trying to think now that race, I'm not sure exactly where they were on the race course, but uh, we certainly were doing a lot of reaching and uh, into broad reaching uh, with that wind angle southwest and we're heading to the southeast. It's, uh, it's kind of perfect. Um, but we have to remember also that 20 to 25 knot range would include gusts that would be at least 40, or not at least, but uh, up to 40% statistically over the average range. So if you've got 20 knots, then 40 extra is going to be another 8 knots on top of that. And if you've got 25 knots, you can extra get an extra 10. So you're talking about 35 knot gust. So when a boat gets hit by a 35 knot gust, that's quite a lot of wind. There's there's no two ways around it, right? You're getting into kind of gale territory there. You get a gust of a gale come through and 20 to 25 knot range has the ability to make quite large waves if it's continuously blowing. Now it would be blowing um, the, the Gulf Stream, which these boats would be crossing as they go from Newport to Bermuda. The Gulf Stream's coming up from about the Southwest, maybe a little bit more South than Southwest, but um, it's coming in that direction and the wind's coming in that direction. So you know, as I, it was, it was pretty rough, and I, I was out there. I was out there on the water when this was uh, going down, and it was rough enough. And we were on an eighty-foot boat. We uh, we blew out a kite. Um, I think just before we heard about this, actually, we blew out a kite, and then that's when the vang broke, and then we broke some battens in the mainsail. And it's like we certainly weren't uh, messing uh, around, just poddling around on a boat on a, on a on a sunny day. It was quite a lot of wind, and. Um, yeah, if you're in a 40-foot boat, of course, that all has much bigger effects. The An 80-foot boat gets a 30 knot or 40% over gust in the sails. She heals a little bit, but she has enough uh, inertia that it's difficult for the wind, if it's a quick gust, to, to move her decks quickly. 
But if you're in a 40 foot boat, which might be weighing about 15 odd tons, 16 tons at this point, and you get a, a 35 knot gust at the top of a, what, 55, 60 foot mast, um, that's going to heal the boat quite considerably. She's probably got, what, like two meters of draft, something like that. Um, even if she's got a deep fin on her, um, it, it's going to have an effect. It's going to move the boat around. And so what we can expect in this situation is that um, when we start to get uh, wind, um, winds being expected of 20 to 25 knot range up to 30, 35 knot gusts, um, that we're going to have decks which are moving around quite a bit. And uh, I, I say that to start to add into the situation because I know kind of how this goes. And uh, it's good just to start to solidify in our minds how the deck of a boat can move quickly when pitched by uh, a wave of uh, larger than expected uh, size uh, created by 20 to 25 knots blowing continuously. Between the start of the race and Sunday afternoon, the vessel raced towards Bermuda without incident. Colin divided the crew into two watches. Uh, first watch was Colin, Rob, Anne and Sean. And the second watch was Sarah, Anne, Johan and Lou. And by all accounts, the watch system functioned smoothly with all crew members getting a reasonable amount of nutrition and rest during the first 40 hours of the race. So oftentimes what you'll find, particularly when people have been looking forward to a race for a long time, they're, you know, they're so excited on the first day. And these starts were all like, I can't remember now, we're going up to like 11. I think we started at 11 or something. Mm, maybe it was a bit later, but it's kind of like midday-ish type start. So, you know, you've probably been up early that, that morning. You probably were getting the boat into its final state of readiness the night before. You're up early. You're taking the boat off the dock. You're saying goodbye to everybody. You're dealing with all the little things that come up on the way to the start line. You're then going through the start line and starting to settle down into the watch system. But oftentimes that will be that people don't really click into it until the early or late evening on the first day. Um, so the first night they have, don't get much sleep. And then the second day, people start to settle into it very wisely. They're doing four hour watches during the day and then three hour watches at night. Those three hour watches at night, really crucial. I personally now run three hour watches both day and night. And I've got to say that it's um, been the best possible system to see crew um, interacting with each other well, um, keeping chipper and keeping upbeat, keeping healthy, keeping uh, focused on their racing. Um, the four-hour watches I now personally believe are a little bit too long, but I don't think it's a, uh, a factor in what happens here. But uh, just as a conversation, certainly though, the three-hour watches uh, at night, very much better. If you're doing four-hour watches at night, I would personally say that's a vector that uh, things can start to go wrong. Uh, where you've got uh, people getting quite tired during the night. So uh, excellent that uh, Colin and the rest of the team here had picked for those three-hour watches at night. Uh, the report continues, and we're just getting the summary here. At uh, 1100 Eastern Daylight Time on Sunday, Colin came on watch with Douglas. Um, I think it's Anne and uh, Edmund. Oh, it's I see. So it's gone into their surnames now. now. So it's uh, Douglas... Okay, so first the first watch comes on. Colin, Rob Douglas, Anne Popolizio, and Sean Edmonds. Okay, so Colin comes on watch on uh, Sunday morning with um, uh, Anne, Rob, Sean. Excellent. Okay, by this time, Colin had gotten to know Douglas's boat handling skills and had been deferring to Douglas on boat handling. Awesome. So that's a really great thing that you see that, you know, we've talked about this before. The captain of the boat, the owner of the boat, doesn't have to be the one with their hand on the wheel. You've got to get the best people in the best situations and spread that around as much as you can so that uh, everybody can contribute to what's going on. Colin 
it's his boat, it's his uh, campaign, he's the captain, but uh, he's, he's happy that Douglas there has got, um, well, Douglas is the second name, so it's uh, Rob, Rob Douglas, beg your pardon. So it's Rob Douglas's boat handling skills had been, um, had been shown to be good enough that uh, he was happy for, Colin was happy for Rob to drive the boat. At this point, Morgan of Marietta was sailing on a starboard tack at a wind angle of about 95 to 130 degrees true, according to the boat's expedition data. So let's just get this right. So she's sailing on starboard tacks. The wind's coming over the starboard side of the vessel. She's heading um, roughly southeast to go from Newport down to uh, Bermuda. And she's got the wind at 95 to 130 degrees true. Now, is that, she's staying on starboard tack with the wind from the southwest. Starboard tack going southeast. So that must be 95 to 130 degrees true. Yeah, but, okay, so yeah, so rel relative to the boat. Uh, so it's 95 and 130 degrees true in relation to the boat, not in any way relating to the, the ground wind angle. Uh Okay, so yeah, and then according to the boat's expedition data, under a full main, a number three Genoa, with winds at approximately 290 to 330 degrees true. You see, so they've got wind angle of about 95 degrees. And then, okay, so just trying to understand it here. So yeah, so they've got, they're basically on a beam to a, um, yeah, a beam reach going down almost to a broad reach, not quite. Um, they've got a full main and a number three Genoa. That sounds like a good combination. And then winds at approximately 290. So coming from north of west the winds coming from north of west are on starboard tack they're driving to the southeast and they on a beam reach going down to perhaps a broad reach uh, uh well they'd be all hoping of course that they could do that could crack out the the kite but they've got a number three genoa and a full main so that's a nice setup they've got a headsail flat headsail easy to handle full main um the only thing with full main of course always remember is that you've got a lot of leverage from the top of the mast if you get a big gust You've got a lot of leverage at the top of the mast, and we were sailing along. Uh, does it give us uh, wind speed here? Uh, yes, so it says, uh, according to the boat's expedition data, wind speeds were consistency, consistently in the low to mid-20s with some higher gusts. And then there's a little mark. Navigator Stan Honey's analysis of the expedition yellow brick tracking data included an animation of track overlaid with other data, and it's linked in the appendix B. Okay, so we've got some good... Um, connected data here but basically you've got a full mainsail you've got the wind on the side of the boat and the wind just slightly behind the boat and you're heading along with the full main and the number three Genoa so I don't know their boat whatsoever but I would say for me personally by the time I've got 20 to 25 knots of wind blowing um, I certainly a reef would be in my mind that's the only thing I could say here a reef would be in my mind because otherwise you're going to start getting pressed pretty hard down into the waves, she's not gonna be able to lift her skirts and kind of go. So you can kind of imagine the, the 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 motion here. That's I guess what I'm trying to. If we're talking about what's the situation, let's really think about it. We're sailors. We know how boats work. We've got a lot of wind coming. It's on the side of the boat and slightly aft. We're heading south. We're probably going over the Gulf Stream now. I don't know if that comes into this later on. Um, and the the boat heading was generally between 160 and 190 degrees with the wind coming from 290 to 330. So I'd say they were pretty powered up at this point, which uh, I'm sure was pretty exciting at the time. But um, that full main is another little red flag for me. So we've got someone who's overweight, who's in the cockpit all the time. Um, 
and uh, is is uh, maybe not on uh, 100% on the, the, the fittest they could possibly be. We've got a lot of wind blowing, uh, big gusts, and uh, we've got a full main up um, in a 40-foot boat. So there's just a few things there that start to make me think. Now, I know always with sailing, with racing, it's always, you know, basically if you can keep that mainsail up longer and get more power out of it, it would certainly appear that you're going faster because of the amount of power that's being generated and the way that the boat's reacting to it. But you know, always check your own boat, check your own situation. I have found consistently on uh, race boats, and I don't mean like super flat bottom surfboards, but just boats like the clipper boats, which are big, heavy uh, displacement boats with um, a lot of rocker, uh, a fine entry and a, and a tapered, uh, tapered stern that um, they don't like lots of mainsail. Remember that aerodynamically a mainsail is a pressing sail and a headsail, which they're on number three Genoa here, is a lifting sail. So the boat's being very pressed down in by the by the wind here. And, um, you know, it's the, the they may know that there's a little bubble of performance available there by keeping hold of that main a little bit longer. But uh, just as I'm reading through this with you now, I'd say that um, with the information we've been presented so far, I'd be feeling quite pressed. Um, According to the boat's expedition data, wind speeds were consistently in the low to mid-20s. That's what we said with higher gusts. Yet crew members report a sea state with waves consistently consistently in the 10-foot range. That's definitely my memory as well, uh, with some higher waves of 12 to 18 feet. Now, again, there's a little note here dropping us to the bottom of the page. According to Chris Bedford, the panel's meteorological expert, the crew's visual analysis was reasonably close to actual conditions. Bedford's analysis suggested an average wave height of 8.5 feet with a max wave height of 17 feet. Bedford's analysis is also attached in a, as Appendix C. So 8.5 feet, so that's the height of a good ceiling. And remember the side of the boat is probably half that height from the, from the water up to the side of the boat. So we all know, of course, that waves don't come in and like slap the side of the boat. But if you're going to beat into it, that's always where I'm at with this. If whatever wind state I'm in, I'm always looking back upwind when I'm running away from it, when I've got a beam reach or a broad reach or whatever it is I'm doing. And I always think, okay, if I had to turn and start going back upwind now, what would that feel like? What would that look like? Because that's the worst possible scenario, right? Um, so 8.5 feet to a max wave height of 17 feet. Um, that's, you're talking like five and a half meters, um, you know, three, three meters to five meter waves um, in a boat which is, uh, two two meters or less of, of uh, six foot of less of uh, freeboard probably a lot less actually probably five foot uh, so 50 odd inches of freeboard um, about uh, 1.6 meters of freeboard and then the wave heights towering over it so she needs to lift and she needs to find her way up and over the waves which of course a boat always will do but we have to recognize the unstoppable object and the immovable object can sometimes come together. And if that wave just decides to make contact with the boat in a way that it's uh, you weren't quite expecting, especially when you've got beam winds here. That's why I was just checking earlier about those true wind angles versus the um, uh, ground wind angle. Uh, we've got uh, a wind angle of 95 to 130 degrees true. A 95 degree true wind angle, that means that the waves are hitting you at 95 degrees as well. That means you, you're getting a beam C. And when you get, you know, the Gulf Stream, which, of course, you're crossing when you're doing this race, is one of the most famous areas. We've just done a another podcast about the, the Triangle of Bermuda. And uh, we talked about the Gulf Stream. And something I don't think I particularly put in there when I was doing it. But um, the Gulf Stream is uh, one of the areas which has been identified as um, very prolific for rogue waves. So when you've got winds on the side of the boat, when you've got waves on the side of the boat, and you're already overpowered, potentially, with a full mainsail, 
um, any kind of wave trough or any kind of wave face or any kind of over volume over unexpectedly large uh, wave that comes along is going to hit you on the side and it's going to have the biggest possible chance of rocking you over now I know what happens a little bit further down this report and know how Colin entered the water, but I'm not really basing my caution on this, on that that uh, knowledge I've already retrieved from scanning this once before. When I did the clipper race in um, 20, 2010 or whatever it was, uh, one of the vessels, uh, Hull and Humber, had a chap on board called Arthur, and Arthur made the news for a little while when he went over the side in the middle of the Atlantic, and his um, dive into the water, which is all you can describe it as, is something which you can pick up and find on YouTube quite easily. If you look for Arthur or Hull and Humber, Clipper Race, Man Overboard, 2010, um, or it might have been 2009 now, think about it, um, you can see it happen. They happened to be filming something else on deck, and then uh, Arthur comes down the side deck on the high side, clipped on, as you would expect, sits on the combing which divides the side deck from the cockpit. He reaches behind him, unclips himself from the uh, jack stay, absolutely as you should do. Um, and then he leans into the cockpit to clip onto the jack stay inside of there. And at that exact moment that his body motion goes forward, he's leading with his head as he leans down into the cockpit to clip onto the, the, the jack stay in the cockpit, a wave whacks the side of the boat and this is a, a 68 foot uh, 40 ton boat a wave whacks the side of the boat in exactly the same conditions on a beam reach and the boat lurches and just with his own body motion and the way everything is lined up arthur dives straight across the decks of a 68 foot boat they're like 20 foot wide those boats and uh, straight out through the guard wires the most unbelievable thing to see um, he just launches it like superman and um, and he's in the water now. The uh, skipper of the vessel, which a friend of mine called Piers Duden, uh, along with the crew, managed to effect a uh, uh, absolutely uh, effective man overboard procedure. They had some twists and turns. They uh, were able to get back to him though and retrieve him from the water. I can't remember exactly how long he was in the water. Now I think it was 30 minutes. But you've got to remember that these are like 68 foot ocean going boats, and we are not in, uh, um, you know simple situations to go back and get someone it's very problematic to to get all the headsails down on those boats to get the crew roused and um, because when you come back to the person when you're trying to get somebody up the side of a 68 foot boat you've got to have somebody in a harness who's going to go over the side retrieve the person from the water there's a lot going on um, but we'll, we'll get around to that later on because they did have some issues getting colin from the water but um the point being that my instinct of how dangerous a situation this can be is maybe perhaps a little bit different from yours when i hear that it's full main the wind's on the beam the wind's gusting over 30 and we're in an area which has uh, rough waves rough weather then my little spidey senses start to start tingling um okay continuing on here now uh, according to the boat's expedition data the water temperature is 23 degrees celsius that's 73 degrees fahrenheit that is quite a nice temperature and we've been looking at the uh, RYA's sea survival handbook and we know that uh, 23 Celsius water in the end it's going to cool you down your body temperature is obviously in the the high 30s once you get your body temperature down 23 degrees you've got a problem but there shouldn't be so much of a cold water shock element when you're going into water that's that temperature however it still would be chilly compared to you know the surrounding area uh, the surrounding air before you go into the water the way you were feeling inside your clothes before you hit the water it's going to be a bit of a shock but um, it shouldn't be 
too bad. I wouldn't have really thought that someone going into 23 degree water would um, experience um, cold water shock too badly. You wouldn't be looking particularly for involuntary gasps or the ingestion of too much seawater. Um, it's, uh, it's not cold enough to make the body's physiology do those things that we've been learning about in that other podcast, but it's certainly going to feel pretty damn chilly if you were on deck and not expecting to go in the water. Um, it says that the boat speeds were 8 to 10 knots and some higher speeds as the boat rolled down the swell. So again, we can have surfs which are up to 40% more. Um, so they're coming down the swells. Remember, the, the wind is on the side of the boat. The waves are on the side of the boat. So unless wind and, and water are kind of out of uh, synchronization with each other, um, as they bore away, remember they, their course was between... Um, 160 and 190 so you can imagine they're getting powered up and then they turn and then run down the swell and then come back on and more power you've got 30 degrees there you've got almost three points uh in the old system um it's it's not just that they weren't uh, choosing to helm straight when you've got 30 degrees uh, variation in the course you're you're using the waves or being pushed to make uh, course changes by the waves particularly if they're hitting you hard on the side um the heel angles, the heel angle on the boat, on average, were around 15 degrees. So 15 degrees, again, you know, that's not very much. I know when we do the um, full ballast testing for the open 60s, back in the day, we used to have this 10 degree. So if I, on my old open 60, if I put the canting keel all the way over to one side and then put all the ballast in down one side, the um, constraints of the Armaka class would be that you cannot have the deck go any more than 10 degrees. So I know exactly what a 10 degree angle on a boat is. 15 degrees, a little beyond that. Um, you know, when a boat's beating going upwind, I've, I've um, raced boats, uh, the open 60s going upwind, you have to be like 25 degrees. Most boats will be designed to run at a, a angle of heel around 20 degrees when they're going upwind or fine reaching. So 15 degrees is not as tipped over as a uh, a beat but it's certainly you know the winds on the side of the boat as we've said the boat's healing over um, but here it says the boat was reportedly well balanced with a manageable degree of helm the crew switched drivers every 30 minutes to keep a fresh hand on the helm so a few things there the boat was reportedly well balanced okay excellent that's that's completely cool that's actually what we want with a manageable degree of helm you know that manageable degree of helm is a very particular phrase there that's because there's quite a lot of mainsail up it says manageable degree of helm. So I'm guessing what's really happening there is that number three Genoa is probably putting quite a lot of wind into the back of the main, into the front of the mainsail. And uh, the, the uh, sheet is probably quite eased or right down on the traveler and uh, maybe the vang's loose so that we've got a lot of twist in the top of the mainsail. And I'm not sure if they're doing um, um, gust response with the traveler, but um, that'd be certainly the way to, to run that situation. A lot of power, a lot of speed available from that number three in the full main. But uh, intelligently, the crew switch drivers every 30 minutes. Absolutely, brilliantly done. That's absolutely how you should do it because it's so important to make sure someone, uh, you know, for performance, they're getting the best from the boat, but also that um, they are on top of it and don't don't make a, a simple mistake, which can happen if start, people start to get into, I've been driving to two or three hours or something. Um, at approximately 12.15 Eastern Daylight Time, Douglas was at the helm of the vessel. Colin was seated in the cockpit on the starboard side. It's a starboard tack, so the wind's coming over the starboard side of the vessel. Colin's on the high side, sitting at the forward end of the cockpit. Um, Anne Popolizio was seated behind him on the starboard side. And uh, now Edmonds is trying to get these, these names, names sorted out. Uh, Sean Edmonds... Um, was sitting to leeward. So Sean's sitting down on the leeward side, the boat's on starboard tack, uh, Colin and uh, on the high side with Colin forward. 
Douglas, Popolizio and Edmonds were all wearing PFDs and were clipped in using their tethers. Uh, according to many members of the crew, it was standard operating procedure for mom crew members to wear PFDs. Now it says PFDs. PFD to me is a personal flotation device, which is a foam filled like kayaking life jacket, uh, or no, gotta be careful, is a kayaking PFD. Okay, life jacket means that it's got a, uh, a methodology whereby when you go into the water, it will keep you face up. That's either because all of the flotation is worn down the front in the event of like an abandonment uh, life jacket of the, the old school ones with the cork in or the foam in, or you've got some kind of jacket with a big collar that then helps to rotate you onto your uh, front, or you've got a Mon style inflating life jacket, which I think probably is what's going on here. Although of course I have only the, the letters PFD here. I don't know what's going on, um, but they are wearing their PFDs. It says their harnesses and their tethers. So again, a little bit confusing because, you know, the, certainly in US sailing, they would say like a PFD and a harness and a tether. So the tether is the thing that connects your life jacket to the boat. But these days the life jacket and the, uh, or the, the flotation device and the harness are the same thing. The structure of the life jacket is the harness. So what we're saying is that they're wearing life jackets and tethers, okay? So that's, this is 12.15 uh, uh, in the daytime. Um, uh, I, I don't think there's any, are they, is there any confusion here? Is this nighttime? No, it's, they're using 24 hour system, so there's no confusion. Okay, so it's 12.15, they've got their PFDs on, <clears throat> and uh, they are sitting in the uh, in the in the cockpit uh, with the harness and tethers on, uh, and they should have them on as per the instructions. When you sail with uh, Rourke, they make you put a sticker. Rourke is the Royal Ocean Racing Club Racing IRC, and they make you put a sticker inside the boat that the captain has to sign. It's about um, I don't know, like eight inches by five inches or something, and it's. Um, uh, it says, you know, you have to have a life jacket on if there's a first reef in, if there's more than 25, 20 knots of wind, I think it is, um, if there's fog, if there's, if it's nighttime, or if the captain says that you have to. So we've got a situation here certainly where um, I would say perhaps they maybe sort of should have had a reef in, would be perhaps my take. But again, I don't know what the situation was. I've only got what I'm reading here. Um, and certainly though at the wind speed, they should have had life jackets on and tethers clipped in. Um, it says, indeed, based on the photo of the vessel at the start of the race, Colin was wearing a PFD at the start of the race. Now, you, you kind of have to, right? Or certainly we all know that, that you, you have it on at the start. You go past a committee boat for a lot of these races, certainly things like the Fastnet and the uh, Caribbean 600 and the um, uh, Rourke Transatlantic. You have to go past the committee boat and show everybody with their life jackets on and with their tethers on, all standing down the starboard side so they can say, yes, everybody has got their life jackets on because there's so much liability from the race officials side as well as from the captain's side. It's always ultimately everything is on the captain, but the race authorities try and do the very best they can to keep people safe by making them show that they have the equipment on board um, on, on race day. Despite these unwritten standards, okay, so unwritten standards, that's a little bit of a pity there because, again, that sticker which goes on, maybe that's something for US sailing, you know, uh, the, the stuff for IRC, that sticker that Rourke give out, it says that you can't stack things, which is part of the IRC, but, you know, as, uh, standing orders like sticker or something which could come down from a race authority, perhaps it just helps to remind people Um you know, that's a, that's a pretty widely understood standard that uh, in those kind of wind conditions, you need to have your life jacket on. We've we talked about it so many times before, um, but it's if you get separated from the boat, 
you don't know what's going to happen next. I guess that's the most important thing to say. You don't know what's going to happen next. And if you go into the water, as we've been learning from reading through the Sea Survival book recently uh, on this podcast, um, the, the body has a lot of things that can start happening to it very quickly, which um, you may not be expecting if you haven't challenged yourself physically, haven't challenged yourself in cold water, haven't challenged yourself in this new environment that you can be thrown into in a hot second on a boat. Okay, we're reading on here. It says, despite these unwritten standards, Colin was not wearing a PFD or a life jacket. I'm just going to put the word life jacket in there because I don't think anybody anywhere is saying that we should have uh, PFDs on, on on yachts at sea. I think we're all wearing life jackets. And I know from the uh, race uh, literature and the, 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 the things that we have to have on board the boats, having PFDs, personal flotation devices, uh, is not correct. They would have to have life jackets. So I'm going to use the word life jacket because... Uh, I think that's uh, it would it would certainly to me it sends the wrong message when it says PFD to imply that people were doing offshore racing PFDs is, is not right. Colin was not wearing a life jacket and was not clipped in at the time of the incident. He was wearing a pair of salopettes, a pair of um, uh, waterproof bottoms, an offshore foul weather jacket and sneakers, and approximately 12:25 Eastern Daylight Time, a large wave hit the vessel. The wave washed over the crew easily burying the vessel's rail. Edmonds was tethered to the boat on the leeward side. He reportedly got hit by the wave and had the impression of being underwater for a period of time. This was a different type of wave from the typical spray that the crew experienced in the time leading up to the incident. So again, it knocks us down with a little uh, number here to a, a comment further down. It says, there were rumors that Edmonds also went overboard in this incident. Edmonds himself denied going overboard. It is possible that his description of feeling underwater during the wave was misinterpreted by some. Um, so, you know, it often can be that you can find yourself a comfortable position anywhere in the cockpit and you've got a little place where you like to go. Where and how you clip on in the cockpit um, often changes when you've had more experience. For me personally, sitting on the leeward side of the cockpit when you've got any kind of a heel on is uh, it puts me in a stressful sort of point of view. It, it, it starts to make me worried that something's going to go on behind me or that I'm going to get thrown backwards and that the kind of the boat or the people or everything's going to like come down on top of me. That's And that's because I've had people fall onto me across cockpits. It's because I've been... Um, thrown backwards by things happening with the boat getting hit in this kind of situation and I, I've slipped on, on on the leeward side of cockpits and nearly gone in the water and a zillion things have led me to not ever choose to sit now I might sit way forward at the front of the cockpit up against the companionway on the leeward side I could definitely see myself doing that but sitting like in the cockpit in the cockpit type seats that I imagine on a 40 foot boat I, I would feel nervous about that it made me feel all the time like I had to engage my abdominal muscles and kind of pull myself uphill to kind of stay in the boat so um, it would be a very nerve-wracking situation to then be thrown um, backwards he said he got the impression that he was uh, in the water you know, maybe they're going to sh give us an idea of like, oh, here we go. So it's right below. It says, um, uh, according to the expedition log on the boat's computer, the heel angle at this time of this big hit was uh, 49.42 degrees. So 50 degrees. So 50 degrees is a big roll. Okay. It's a big roll. So um, 
let me see, when I was on a naval vessel in the UK way back when, uh, they ended up realizing that the angle of vanishing stability for that motorboat was 44 degrees, and they actually limited the kind of weather they could go out in. 50 degrees is then getting to a point where the mast, as viewed from behind, has gone more than halfway from upright to the horizon. It's a big knock. Now, would it be enough to uh, have the person sitting on the loose, leeward side of the cockpit in the water? No, but the, the round bulge of the side of the boat would get pressed under more than anything else. Of course, it's a bulge, it's sticking down into the water and a big slop of water would come down the side deck. And if you've been thrown backwards in your seat um, on the leeward side of the cockpit, that big wave's gonna run down right on top of you. I don't think if anything, the wave would come over the top of the combing on the weather side and hit you, although some, some of it might as it broke and hit the side of the boat. But um, you begin it from all angles. You begin it from that wave coming over the top, but then you begin a big slop of it coming down the side. Plus just you're getting a hell of a lot closer to the water really, really quickly and the water's gonna slop into you. So as I hear this, I, I think of um, something we've discussed previously on this podcast, which is that if you read Adlard Cole's Heavy Weather Sailing, there they propose that it's um, a, a fact of the design of vessels that uh, a wave, a breaking wave, with a breaking face one third of the beam of your vessel on a traditional boat is enough to roll the boat. So if you're in waves which up here are described as being 12 to 18 feet, um, if one third of the beam of a 40 foot boat is, is gonna be what, like 11, 12 feet, something like that, um, one third of that's gonna be about four feet. So you only need to have four feet of a 12 to 18 foot wave breaking at the top of its crest and suddenly you've got a situation where you've got enough weight in the water that it can put the boat over onto its beam ends or or even roll it so it doesn't look like they've been hit by something quite that big but they've had one of those big tank slappers that comes in hits the side of the boat hard and the boat just doesn't have enough weight in its keel and it doesn't have enough ultimate stability to stand up to that uh, that extra force when the main is so full the main's super full. We're kind of on the edge of what we can do here. We've got weight to leeward. Um, we've got um, waves coming in from the side of the boat and uh, everything is set up for a big tank slapper to really push the boat over onto its side a little bit more. So, so if I had been stood at the back of the boat in this situation, as I've done a hundred times before, I'd have been telling people to come up off the leeward side of the cockpit and I'd been making sure everybody was uh, clipped into the boat. And that's not to be, you know, the clever guy like, hey, you know, I'm... Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty and all that kind of stuff. That's just saying that's what Rourke says to people in those kind of conditions, wind speed of that size, you should be clipped on and, and tethered to the boat. Um, that reefing for vessels about that kind of speed, you probably already have a reef in. Um, the fact is that the boat doesn't go any faster uh, if you have that much main on. Um, and a situation can come about where through a lot of experience, a lot of examples of seeing this, I have seen this situation end up with a big lurch of the boat as per the uh, clipper incident with Arthur, where someone is then pitched across the cockpit. Now, on the boats that I run on, which are a bigger boat, the issue is actually more that people get injured by falling across the cockpit. I remember doing a transatlantic voyage a couple of years ago with a, a great friend of mine, uh, Matt, and uh, hello, Matt, if you're, if you're Professor Matt, if he's uh, listening to this. Um, and uh, he had a tether, uh, he had the longer side of his tether clipped on just down, it, we were on port tack and he was on the port wheel 
and uh, he was clipped on to a point that was down by his right foot. So he was clipped on on the center line of the vessel and the boat's healing with the, you know, the, the port side in the air, the starboard side down low, and he's clipped on on the center line. And a bigger wave came along and Matt got thrown uh, the entire length of the tether from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat, hurt his knee, and was pretty uh, discombobulated by it. Um, but that's, you know, if you're going from, uh, those tethers are like, what, like nearly two meters. So you're going from two meters one side of a connection point to two meters the other side of the connection point. It's a four meter dive head first. It's gonna end up being a problem. I've seen people dive across boats when they get hit by waves like this. So I already have, again, my spider senses tingling that, if there's anything going to happen, let's have a look. What else, other kind of things could happen now? Um, a roundup, a wave hits the back of the boat and it rounds the boat up to weather. Um, a big lurch of the boat that causes somebody inside the boat to, to fall over. Um, I would say that you've got a lot of pressure in the rig right now. So I'd be looking at my windward rigging and looking to see like, is everything okay? I'd be listening to the rig and listening. Can I hear anything like ding, 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 little noises going on inside the rig. And when I say listen to the rig, I mean, literally you get the, the windward stay and you put it across your ear and across the, the side of your cheek there and then clamp it into position with your hand going over the wire and over your ear to make kind of a little acoustic um, seal and then you put your finger in your other ear and then you've got this wire that you're listening to and you should be able to hear the halyard stretching and you'll hear the snake with the um, electrical cables in running down the center mast you'll hear that flapping around you hear the vang moving and you hear maybe the you know other things that are specific to your vessel but if you can hear anything kind of going to ding 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 like little noises you can hear metal components like in tension maybe fractured and moving um, it's a very good indicator it's time to tack put the weight on the other rigging and find out what earth's going on in this situation also i'd be looking at my leeward rigging because i have another experience where i've been on a boat where the um, pins on the um, cap shrouds were put in from the outside to the inside of the boat and then the pins put on on the inside which was all about that uh, you can kind of see the, the the split pins are in the in the cotter pins where the rigging is attached or in the in the the big for me, they're kind of like one inch across pins that hold the, the cap shrouds on. The problem with that plan is that um, if your leeward rigging goes loose, then and the so if if the if the split pin makes its way out of your rigging and the 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 the, the leeward rigging then goes loose, uh, then the pin which is mounted from the outside of the boat to the inside of the boat, it can then fall out through the effect of gravity when that rigging goes loose. You better always to put those um, those cap shroud pins in from the inside of the boat to the outside with this with the split pins on the outside and yeah you're going to have to go like walk over use your you know legs to get over there and look at the pin on the outside but in the event of that pin somehow coming off or out or whatever it is getting torn off somehow that pin even when it's in the uh loose position when it's the leeward rigging the pin cannot fall out to uh the leeward side of the boat because it was put from the inside to the outside of the boat i hope that makes sense but these are the things that be going through my head in this situation so then that's what I'm trying to communicate to you. And that's why I hope Colin's story here communicates that uh, when you see these things start to line up, this is the basis of experience. You've seen this before. You've seen how it goes and you know what can happen. Um, at approximately 12.15, oh, have we done this bit? We've done this bit already. Okay. Despite the unwritten standards, uh, Colin was not wearing his PFD. The wave washed over the crew. Uh, he was in the water for a long period of time. Uh, oh no, sorry, Edmonds had a feeling, an impression of being underwater, beg your pardon. Um, according to multiple crew accounts, this wave washed Colin over the top of the Lewis lifelines and into the water. There's the thing that caused all of this. So Colin was sitting at the front of the cockpit on the uh, starboard side 
with the boat on starboard tack. He was on the high side of the cockpit, at the front of the cockpit by the companionway. And um, unfortunately, he was not wearing a life jacket and therefore was not tethered to the boat. Big hit from a wave. Um, and it says speed over the ground during these few seconds was recorded at 15 knots and 18.8 knots. Okay, that's that's a lot of speed for a little boat. Um, I would say there's a, uh, um, as that wave comes along, waves tend to be traveling through the ocean at between 15 and 18 knots. So the boat was traveling along going across the waves and then suddenly, you know, a couple of thousand cubic meters, cumex of water slapped the side of the boat and accelerated from what it was doing, which was, it was doing, was it like eight to 12 knots or something? I think they said eight to 10 knots. It was doing eight to 10 knots and suddenly got this massive increase in speed. And lo and behold, it goes up to the exact speed that waves travel at. So um, it, it's on the wave, in the wave, moving quickly. But you can see suddenly there's this moment where anybody then gets disconnected from the boat. They're not just next to the boat. They are then very quickly away from the boat. With Colin overboard, the report continues, the crew quickly initiated a person overboard response. Douglas assigned uh, Anne Popolizio the role of being the spotter, and she maintained eye contact with Colin in the water. Douglas called out that a man was overboard to the watch below. Popolizio hit the POB button, it's written as here, what we would know normally as a man overboard button, but they're trying to be uh, very clear here that it's a person overboard, but in this situation, it literally is a man overboard, so we'll just go with that. So Pablitio hit the man overboard button on the vessel's Raymarine chart plotter located on the steering pedestal. That's brilliant, hey? Always need to know how you're going to indicate quickly a man overboard button. So where is it you can go for man overboard button? If you've got any kind of chart plotter, definitely there. A lot of the new um, VHF radios have got that. Um, you can write down the, the, the latitude and longitude as it appears on your instrument. So you can press electronic buttons, but you can also write down the number when it happens, even if you're, you know, 20, 30 seconds after to get it written down somewhere in case everything turns off. Um, or then you can get out your handheld GPS or your phone or something, input that point as a waypoint and then start to navigate back to it. Um, you can also, uh, you know, on each individual boat, there's other places you can go to, uh, to uh, different chart plotters, different instruments that you can go to and put in your uh, man overboard mark. Uh, also, of course, on your uh, laptop, if you're, if you're running expedition, that means that there'll be a button on the expedition that can be clicked. Um, and a lot of these watches now that people have got um, with the navigation going on, I'm really, really amazed at how much better those are. But they're fantastic. If you can ping a uh, a start line with them. You can um, do man overboard with them. You can keep track of where the point is that you're heading to on the vessel. Like they're an incredible piece of equipment. And again, in this situation, would give you the ability to navigate back to where you were, close to where your person's gone into the water. Um, Edmonds uh, readied the life sling on the port side. And again, just to remind you, life sling here has got a capital L. Um, it's a proper noun. It is the, the actual piece of equipment called the life sling, which is, you may, I think everyone kind of knows this. It's kind of a square bag, goes on the back of the boat, and it has this uh, folded up like a horseshoe life buoy, essentially made of three square parts that uh, wrap around a person. And it's got a polypropylene line, 100 foot of polypropylene line. Um, and the intention with a life sling is that you are going to have it attached to the boat and then you're going to throw it 
into the water and then if you follow the instructions on the front of the life sling what it indicates is that you're meant to circle around the person who's in the water and that that then will bring the life sling to them now i've had a number of people who are experienced water skiers say you can't circle round and round somebody that's in the water with a tow bar for uh, water skiing because if you circle around them the tow bar will just stay in your wake going round around the person so what they've said is you should kind of uh, see the person in the water then take a diagonal route as you pass them take a diagonal turn so that the 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 line essentially ends up going over their head and then that tow towed item comes directly to them rather than going round around them place it on them by taking that diagonal cut over the over the top of their position um Edmunds readied the life sling on the port sign and then also served as a spotter for Colin. Edmunds kept his eyes on Colin from the time he realised Colin had fallen overboard until he was reconnected to the boat. Douglas tacked the boat, backwinded both sails and executed a quick stop manoeuvre. Okay, so Douglas, and again, just to confirm, this is, uh, just get all these names sorted out. Douglas, Rob Douglas, Anne Popolizio, Sean Edmunds, and then down below decks, off watch at this point, Sarah Burke, Ann Meyer, Johan Block, and Lou Rugolo. Um, so those on deck are doing absolutely everything that really could be done in this situation. The key thing there, the life-saving equipment choice, which is the, um, the, the life sling at this point, I think we could have a discussion about what other things you could put into the water. Um, but this is an excellent start. And uh, they've tacked the boat, backwinded both sails, and it executed a quick stop maneuver. He's basically hove the boat to. Um, for me, this is not something that's quite so easily possible because we have running backstays and we'd have to get over the problem that the main would then be up against the previously active backstay. And I've got to quickly grind on what was the lazy backstay and release the main. But that's it's not about our boat it's, it's it's the benefit of having a 40 footer without those kind of backstays you can just flick it over that headsail stays exactly where it is don't release the sheet and then you bring as the boat slows down and stops it's going to be trying to um uh, uh the mainsail is going to be trying to turn the boat up into the wind the jib's trying to push the wind uh, push, push the bow of the boat away from the wind and then you'll find the helm position that works best for you oftentimes it's trying to the helm should be hard over trying to drive the boat further up into the wind which then the wind will push back on the on the jib and and uh, and hold it off and you come to this kind of like balancing point there's always a bit of speed connected with it so you're always doing one two knots because you have to have some flow through the water for the rudder to have its effect which is trying to push the bow up into the wind but um it's going to bring that speed right down from eight to ten knots to one or two knots very, very quickly. So well done to the crew for, for doing that. It sounds like they've dropped straight into their person overboard evolution. And uh, and uh, uh, also the other thing here, of course, is that they've got eyes on, they've got the, the person overboard button has been pressed. They've got eyes on the person in the water. They've done the quick stop and they've got their gear into the water. That's everything you can, you can do. Um, once the off watch crew were alerted of the person overboard, they put on their PFDs and came up on deck. Excellent. Don't come rushing up too quickly. Come with equipment. Come with a, your head on a swivel because you're going to be needing to do something which is very new. You can always practice for person overboard, but never kind of goes down exactly the, the way you were thinking. Um, while no crew member could provide an exact estimate of timing, it appears that they were able to do so within a minute or two. Yeah, And, and that's the thing is that uh, you need to get people on deck real quickly, but you don't want to rush them up there to a point where you have extra emergencies starting. So a couple of minutes sounds about good. Once the off-watch crew came on deck, they threw two Type 4 cushions overboard in order to create a debris field. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, they could see him. He's right there. They're feeling very 
uh, I wouldn't say confident, it's not the right word, but they're feeling very clear about what their, their course of action is. And they start to add other things to the water just in case they lose him. Because those, uh, those cushions, which could just be cockpit cushions or something, um, they are uh, going to be moved around by the wind a lot more. And that means that the position of the part, the person in the water is going to be upwind from the debris that you find. Put debris in the water, which is blown around by the wind, and put debris in the water, which makes a hydraulic lock in the water. Um, and then there's something like a, um, I'm trying to think, like a, 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 a jacket or clothing or something that will float, uh, um, polypropylene line, anything that's going to be in the water but not in the wind will get has a hydraulic lock. It's going to move with the drift or current that you're in remember they could well be in the gulf stream here which is moving at two or three knots so no one's going to be on that gps position within just a very short period of time but those uh, lightweight things are going to be in a downwind position from your person and those uh, pieces of debris which have a hydraulic lock which your, your your victim also has they're going to still maintain their relationship to him because they are equally hydraulically locked into however the water body is moving um they then dropped the jib and one of the off-watch crew members started the engine. Okay, at that point, let's all remember, you've got to look around for lines. Look and look and look for lines because the engine is such a key part of all this. And then uh, if you get a rope into the engine because you're doing things quickly, it can totally take away that tool which you really need to make a quick uh, return to your person in the water. As the boat returned to Colin, it passed him to windward. Edmonds deployed the life sling. Douglas tacked the boat back over and brought so he just they dropped the jib so he's got the mainsail and hopefully that mainsail is pinned directly in the center because it heals the boat over makes it easier to bring people onto the onto the boat um douglas tacked the boat back over and brought the life sling around colin brilliant so he he did that so he he brought it uh, to windward the life sling was uh, deployed and then he tacked the boat over and brought that life sling to colin that's absolutely brilliant and there's a little thing here that um uh knocks us down to a, a, a comment here um, according to multiple accounts, the crew did not deploy the boat's MOM-8 unit. Uh, crew members report that during pre-race discussions, they discussed potential use of the MOM-8 unit, but in the heat of the moment, deploying the MOM-8 unit apparently was not considered. However, none of the crew saw Colin struggling to stay above the water. Edmonds recalled that Colin appeared to be comfortably treading water during the minutes leading up to his connection via the life sling. Now, I don't honestly know what is a MOM-8 unit. Is this some kind of like damn boy thing? I'm just going to put it into my uh, computer here. It's a little bit confusing because you've got um, Marietta of uh, Morgan of Marietta as the name of the uh, vessel is a MOM uh, in this report. But then you've also got this MOM-8 thing. Uh, oh, it's a man overboard module, but from uh, Switlick. Oh, I didn't know that it's called that. Okay. So the Morgan of Marriott uh, 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 MOM, but this is a, a man overboard module. Let's have a quick see what it looks like. Um, it's it's one of those little okay yeah. So it's um it's a plastic box on the back of the boat with a pull handle. You pull it and uh, a a life uh, uh, saving pole, an inflatable life saving pole with a weight on the bottom of it is deployed off the back of the boat with a drogue and with a whistle. It looks like there's also some kind of uh, a, a inflatable um, horseshoe type thing here as well. Uh, uh, yeah, it's so it's it's a two two part object giving you a high post with visibility 
uh, increased visibility because of that post sticking a couple of meters out the water and then some kind of inflatable life sling to go uh, along with it it's very fair for them to say in the heat of the moment you and that's the thing with any of this um, you know what you actually end up doing is very has almost nothing to do with what you discuss uh, as being your best course of action um, when doing your pre-race training the fact that they have done so many of the things that need to be done here is a great credit to them great credit to their training and their preparation and um as it said, Colin was very involved in the um, preparation of the boat. Then I would say that what they did was also a function of uh, what Colin had uh, implored them to to do if, if something like this should happen. It's unfortunate that it has happened. Um, let's have a see. Uh, okay, so they dropped the jib. Yeah, passed them to windward. They gave him the life sling. The entire process took four to five minutes from the time Colin was washed overboard. According to crew accounts, the boat never got more than 300 yards, it's about 300 meters, away from Colin during this process. Within three minutes of Colin falling overboard, Mom's recorded speed was between zero and three knots. That is absolutely brilliant. For, the entire process took four to five minutes. Okay, so within uh, within three minutes of Colin falling overboard, and they'll be able to see that big lurch on the uh, the heel angle, which would give them the point of when this happened. Mom's recorded speed was between zero and three knots. That is absolutely phenomenal. That's a, a credit to the, the crew of this vessel. They didn't get the outcome that they were hoping for in this situation, but you can't say that it's not for them not um, putting all the effort in to do everything that could be required. Colin made contact with the life sling and was alert at the time he did so. He swam to the life sling. God, that must, that's, a, that's, a, you know, that's a moment where you're like, okay, we're making this happen. We've got the life sling to him. We've stopped the boat. He's swimming to the life swing. Um, proceed, he proceeded to put the life sling on under his arms without any issues. Brilliant. He was not talking at this point, nor did anyone on the crew hear Colin talking after he fell overboard. To be absolutely honest, you know, if he's done his training, which he will have done to have been the captain of this vessel, he have to do the two-day safety at sea course. You're not meant to do much <clears throat> talking when you're in the water for fear of getting water into your mouth, which again, he'd be a little bit more exposed to because he's not got a life jacket on. And so he's, his mouth is going to be physically closer to the water. And these waves haven't gone down. These waves are still between 12 and 18 foot. So I would imagine that he is indeed, um, you know, just keeping his keeping his mouth shut, to be absolutely honest. Um, once Colin was connected to the boat via the life sling, Edmonds <clears throat> proceeded to slowly pull him back to the boat and verbally expressed concern for keeping his head up and out of the sea state. Absolutely. Now he's got the life sling under his arms. He's being towed to the boat. Um, <clears throat> some crew members report being able to make eye contact with him during this time. So... This, you know, it seems like everything has been done that could be done. And the only things is the, the condition of the sea versus how powered up that boat was and maybe not being 100 percent on like quite how quickly that could go into a, a big boat, a big ship roll, big lurch from the boat. And then, of course, we've got this issue, which Colin had not got his life jacket on. Um, Edmund's original plan was to bring the life sling to midship, which for me would certainly be the way to do this and bring him back on board. However, during the process of bringing him back onto the boat, Colin appeared to lose consciousness and his face went into the water. Edmunds was very concerned about the amount of time Colin's face was going to be in the water and brought him to the swim platform in order to get because this thing would be connected at the back of the boat so rather than continuing pulling him all the way to the middle of the boat it's just okay we're at the back of the boat but still we've got very big waves here and now the boat is heaved too it's taken the waves again kind of 
maybe on the quarter, maybe somewhat on, on the beam. I'm not sure exactly, but we're going to be in a very tricky situation. We often don't favor um, bringing people to the back of the boat because the underside of the stern of most boats um, is, uh, is certainly when you've got a swim platform, which this one has, it's going to be quite flat at the back. And uh, if the boat rears up, it's way too easy for it to come down onto the victim in the water. So um, the, the point of the boat, which also has the, the least pitch, is the, is the center of the boat. You've got the rigging there to hold on to. That's where the halyards come down You know, to. They're coming down onto the foredeck, the ones that you're going to be using for rescue. Um, at the back of the boat uh, appears like it's a, a, a quick... Uh, option but it can often be more more complex but it sounds like um, Colin appeared to lose consciousness it says and his face went into the water during the process of bringing him back to the boat so Colin lost consciousness and went face into the water that's why they chose to get this uh, situation at the back of the boat just get him out of the water as quick as we can get his face out of the water multiple crew members stood on the platform and raised Colin's head out of the water excellent as they attached the vessel's jib halyard to the life sling Okay, so we do have a problem arising here. A jib halyard on a 40-foot boat led back to the back of the boat to connect onto something is, is uh, it, something is not going to work very well, I think is the only thing we can say, right? It's, uh, it, it's something we should think about and, and try and work out a way that we, we can do it because those halyards are there and obviously you want to get them out of the water as quick as you can. You've got them at a swim platform, but trying to get them... Uh, up out the water there or maybe they let him run to the front let's let's continue on uh, but certainly the jib halyard thing at the back of the boat is, is a problem at this point oh colin's skin was blue and he was unresponsive while trying while trying to raise colin's body on the jib halyard the halyard chafed aggressively and began to shred eventually because it's coming sideways out the sheath at the top of the mast right it's uh you think about it at the top of the mast there the sheaves that you, you there's three different sorts of sheaves that you get on the top of the mast you get a wire sheave that's got like a deep uh, v in it you get a um kevlar sheave which has got a flat bottom to the sheave and then you've got the the normal ones that you'd see now with a curved bottom to them intended for um poly you know poly polyester ropes uh, uh kern manta ro kern manta ropes type one or type two ropes um the modern style of rope but those side bits on it are sharp and if you the the um tangs on the side of the shroud uh, tangs on the side of the um shreve gap uh, shreve gap my goodness me <laughs> the sheave gap at the top of the mast and the side of the um uh, the poly pulley block up there can end up um just ripping through your um your your uh, gear the problem also is on this kind of size of boat you probably got a lot of polyester lines you may not have so much dyneema um if it starts to cut through that polyester uh it's gonna it, it's gonna it's gonna be useless within a couple of a couple of minutes um particularly if you've got quite a lot of weight on it you're trying to move so that's exit at the top of the mast and then wrapping around the cap shrouds and then running right to the back of the boat it's kind of that's what was my concern as soon as they said that that's not going to work quite uh, quite as well as we might have liked it to eventually says the report colin slid out of the life sling and the crew members were unable to retrain retain a grasp of him he was floating face down near the boat and believed by the crew to be dead at this point well i am for those for whom colin was a friend and a family member my heart goes out to you um it's a terrible situation i'm going to um going to leave it there uh it, the, the report goes on to detail what then happened afterwards but i'm going to look at 
how it happened and how the report uh, report, uh, tells us the rescue went. I think that is where we need to uh, uh, learn. Um, It says that the vessel circled Colin's body awaiting assistance, which is a, a very, very difficult time for the crew. And again, my heart goes out for them. They absolutely did everything that um, you could want to do. And it clearly something has happened to Colin as he's being, um, you know, moved back to the to the boat. Um, okay. the crew found the life sling ineffective because Colin was unconscious and unable to maintain his position in the device. The crew tried to use a drogue, wrapping it around him and pulling it up. This failed. Okay, I just want to go... Oh my goodness me. Actually, I'm going to go back and just uh, share this with you. Um, through, Through relay, through Mayday relay, the crew of the vessel understood that the helicopter was going to be dispatched to assist. Uh, The vessel circled Colin's body, awaiting assistance from uh, the Coast Guard. Approximately an hour later, the crew, so you're circling, you know, a body in the water for an hour. The crew learned that the Coast Guard would not be coming and they renewed their efforts to retrieve Colin's body from the ocean. Good Lord. The crew found the life sling ineffective because Colin was unconscious and unable to maintain his position in the device. The crew tried to use a drogue, wrapping it around him and pulling it up. This failed. Next, the crew tried to hoist Colin's body using the straps of his salopettes. This also failed. Finally, after at least two hours of effort, the crew secured lines around various parts of Colin's body and using the main halyard, hauled the body on deck. The crew zipped Colin's body into the number three Genoa bag and lashed it to the rail and began heading for the boat's home port. Okay. Okay. Key conclusions. The conditions existing at the time of the incident clearly warranted use of a life jacket combined with a harness and tether. It says PFD combined with a harness and tether. I just, I struggle with that. Life jacket is what we want to say here and tether and to be clipped on while on deck. Indeed, Colin's fellow watch members were equipped in this manner. Some were even double tethered to keep themselves as close as possible to the boat and also to you know, have the legitimate um, backup of if one of those uh, uh, tether points becomes disconnected or breaks or anything else. Colin's failure to wear and use a PFD, harness and tether approximately caused the uh, person overboard incident and ultimately his death. Colin's crew did not press him to wear a PFD harness and tether in these conditions. Had Colin been wearing a PFD harness and tether, it is highly unlikely that he would have been washed overboard. That's that's the thing, right? And we just, if we if we take nothing else from this, we don't need to worry about how the boat was set up or how people came, got him out of the water or anything else. Let's just take this from this. You know, for Colin's sake, clip on. You know, for Colin's sake, clip on. That's, that's the thing, is that out of this, I'm sure those who knew him would say that had he got back to the boat, he would have then been uh, the one wearing the life jacket every single time. Um, he would have learnt from that that uh, things are maybe not quite as he expected them to be. And, uh, you know, he couldn't hold himself on the boat in all situations as he might once have done. His extra weight would have uh, made it particularly difficult for him to to, uh, to hold on in those situations. But separation from the boat is your primary worry. If you're in the water, suddenly all the resources of the boat are separated from you and you have this terrible situation then where uh, those on board uh, you know, have to enact a person overboard uh, event. Uh, number three, um, the evidence suggests that Colin died due to drowning. This is the conclusion reached in the medical report provided, a conclusion that was confirmed by Dr. Larkin. Some crew members speculated that Colin died of some other sudden cause, pointing to the fact that he appeared to be alert and was making eye contact with the crew. 
Dr. Larkin advised that the process of drowning is gradual and that such reactions are not inconsistent with a drowning diagnosis. Number nine. Oh, I've got a, I've got something I have to go and look at here. Uh, okay, so I've got another little article here called Drowning Doesn't Look Like Drowning. Uh, the instinctive drowning response, so named by Francesco A. Pia, PhD, is what people do to avoid actual or perceived suffocation in the water, and it does not look like most people expect. There is very little splashing, no waving, no yelling or calls for help of any kind. To get an idea of just how quiet and undramatic from the surface drowning can be, consider this. It is the number two cause of accidental death in children aged 15 and under. We discussed that just recently, hey? Just behind vehicle accidents. Of the approximately 750 children who drown, who will drown next year, good Lord, about 375 of them will do so within 25 yards of a parent or another adult. Oh, sobering. In 10% of these drownings, the adult will actually watch them do it having no idea it is happening. Good Lord. Okay, we're going to read this because this is important. I got to say, when I first scanned through this, I thought, well, no, he's had a heart attack or something uh, when he got into the uh, life sling. But this is important to know, and this is what the doctor, Dr. Larkin, is pointing at. It says, number one, except in rare circumstances, drowning people are physiologically unable to call out for help. The respiratory system was designed for breathing. Speech is the secondary or overlaid function. Breathing must be fulfilled before speech occurs. Makes sense. Drowning people's mouths alternately sink below and reappear appear above the surface of the water. The mouths of drowning people are not above the surface of the water long enough for them to exhale, inhale, and then call out for help. When the drowning people's mouths are above the surface, they exhale and inhale quickly as their mouths start to sink below the surface of the water. It doesn't sound exactly like the situation here, but I see what they're getting at. Drowning people cannot wave for help. Nature instinctively forces them to extend their arms laterally and press down on the water surface. They put their arms out like in a, in a T-shape, stretching out to their sides and press down on the water surface. Pressing down on the surface of the water permits drowning people to leverage their bodies so they can lift their mouths out of the water to breathe. Okay, so they can't wave because they're, they're leveraging themselves out of the water so that they can breathe, breathing being the primary function. Throughout the instinctive drowning response, drowning people cannot voluntarily control their arm movements. Physiologically, drowning people who are struggling on the surface of the water cannot stop drowning and perform voluntary movements such as waving for help, moving towards a rescuer, or reaching out for a piece of rescue equipment. Well, that would seem to say that that's not quite exactly what was going on here because Colin made his way to the float. From beginning to end of the instinctive drowning response, people's bodies remain upright in the water with no evidence of a supporting kick where he looked to be comfortably treading water. Unless rescued by a trained lifeguard, these drowning people can only struggle on the surface of the water from 20 to 60 seconds before submersion occurs. Okay, so I'm going to read this just so we all know exactly where this goes. This doesn't mean that a person that is yelling for help and thrashing isn't in real trouble. They are uh, experiencing aquatic distress not always present before the instinctive drowning response, aquatic distress doesn't last long, but unlike true drowning, these victims can still assist in their own rescue. They can grab lifelines, throw rings, etc. It kind of feels like where we were at, although he didn't call out. Look for these other sounds of drowning when persons are in the water, head low in the water, mouth at water level, head tilted back with open mouth, eyes glassy and empty, unable to focus while well, they said they got eye contact with him, eyes closed, 
hair over forehead or eyes, not using the legs while he was treading water, hyperventilating or gasping. I think that's probably something that was going on. Trying to swim in a particular direction but not making headway while well, he made headway to the float, uh, to the life sling, trying to roll over on their back, ladder climb, rarely out of the water. Uh, I guess you're trying to do like a kind of doggy, doggy paddle in front of yourself, but you're rarely out of the water. Um, so if a crew member falls overboard and everything looks okay, don't be too sure. Sometimes the most common indication that someone is drowning is that they don't look like they're drowning. They may just look like they're treading water and looking up at the deck. <sighs> That's sobering, isn't it? One way to be sure. Ask them, are you all right? If they can answer it all, they probably are. If they return a blank stare, blank stare probably, you may have less than 30 seconds to get to them. And parents, children playing in the water make noise. When they get quiet, you get to them and find out why. I've learned that very recently. I now have a nine-month-old little boy. And uh, I'm learning very rapidly that uh, when he's in his little playroom and he's doing his thing and we can hear the blocks moving and the, the crashing and banging of whatever he's pulling apart, that's all good. It's when he goes quiet that suddenly something's probably going into his mouth. So... Okay, well, that's an excellent um, uh, thing for us to, to, to pick up on there. Um, drowning may not look exactly the way we were expecting. I think that's a very important thing to, to share here as well. I, I certainly wasn't aware of that. I would say that it's not completely consistent with the evidence that's been presented because it says here that he made his way to the float, that he, but then it says like he may just look like he's treading water and looking up at the deck. So I don't know there. Um, I would say that... Uh, you know, well, uh, you know, what, who am I to say anything? A doctor has checked through this. Let's just go with that. I would say, though, that in this kind of situation, one thing that we do know is that a person may well get within a piece of uh, safety equipment, may get to the side of the boat, may indeed be hoisted out of the, of the water, and still you can have serious heart complications um, when they um, uh, look like they're just about to be rescued. Suddenly, something internally can fail. Uh, because of unexpected circumstances and unfortunately the person is lost despite an excellent person overboard evolution. Um, we've got two more uh, uh, um, points here, key conclusions. Uh, number four, the crew of the vessel properly executed man overboard procedures and reconnected Colin to the boat within four or five minutes. That's really excellent. Never losing sight of Colin. Their efforts in this regard are impressive especially given the conditions. I would absolutely second that. That is absolutely correct. You know, stopping the boat that quickly, making the decisions that add up to getting that um, life sling into his hands uh, as quickly as they did. If there was any chance he was going to get back to the boat, they, they certainly laid the foundation for it. It's terribly unfortunate that it didn't work out that way, um, but uh, I think they did everything they possibly could. The crew of the vessel uh, experienced great difficulty in recovering Colin's body. Recovering an unconscious body absent a PFD and harness particularly given Colin's physical stature and the conditions existing at the time of the incident, would have been extraordinarily difficult for any crew. Any crew. Okay. Um, we have got three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 10, 11, 12. Recommendations. Can we get through them relatively quickly without this being a massively long podcast? Well, you know what? It's pretty important, so let's go through it. The recommendations. As stated above, we find that the crew of the vessel acted properly with respect to the recovery of Colin's body. Given the difficult circumstances that existed, we commend them for their skill and the bravery that they demonstrated, absolutely. Believe that the offshore sailing community can learn many lessons from this incident and offer the recommendations below towards that end. A, wearing of PFDs, harnesses and tethers. Sailors should wear their life jackets, harnesses and tethers when on deck in inclement weather and when conditions otherwise warrant. We believe this incident would not have occurred 
had Colin been wearing a PFD harness and tether and was in fact tethered to the boat. Stating the obvious, if you fall overboard while sailing offshore, your chance of death increases dramatically. This is literally in bold print in the in the report. Staying attached to the boat, it's critical to minimizing this risk. So I would go further than that and say that if you make a decision not to wear a life jacket, then you are admitting in a degree of risk which belies, uh, you know, how smart you actually are. And I would lay that on myself as well. There's plenty of stuff you'll see of me on YouTube wearing life jackets um, and you'll see a lot of stuff when I'm not as well. Oftentimes if I'm not, if it's very, very flat weather, there's no waves, the boat's not healing over or I make a judgment that the, the angle of deck is not going to revolutionarily change in the next you know, little while, uh, I'll often work on the basis that this is a, 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 a static system that I can, uh, I can, uh, negotiate we're talking about a boat from my point of view it's like 21 foot wide and 80 foot long it's a lot harder to get to the edges as soon as the sea state has me stumbling around um, then I'm very quick to put the life jacket on and um, but but I think that should be opened out to just you just have your life jacket on you just have it on now what I will say with that stuff on YouTube is that you'll often see that I'm not wearing a life jacket but I'm actually wearing my deck assist belt which is this belt with a big d-ring at the front of it my knife's attached to and that has its own tether just like a life jacket tether and that's often clipped on or can be clipped on so having something that you can clip on is super super important however whatever that may be but you know it, it doesn't even have to be a life jacket just something that connects you to the boat you have to do that you for, for Colin's sake clip on um, B, uh, responsibility of all crew members to ensure compliance with safety requirements. It is often said that wearing such equipment is a personal decision. Well, we disagree, says the, 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 the board here of all these experienced sailors, and I agree with them. At any time a person goes overboard, the entire crew is at risk. There is, a, a, you know, the, a mayday is when a vessel or an individual of the crew are in grave or imminent danger. But when... Members of the crew have to then go back and, and get somebody out of the water. There is, of course, a shift of risk uh, for, for those on board as well. I can remember being in the Pacific in a hurricane uh, with 20-odd crew on the boat and saying to them, uh, there was only three of them on deck at any one time. They were only up there for 20 minutes. And they were like, it's not that they were double tethered on to a single point. They had uh, two complete tethering systems attached to them and then four points on because the wind was blowing you know, 55, 60 knots for days and days and days. We were traveling east across the Pacific in this thing. It blew over 45 knots for two weeks. So um, we got very safe, And but it got to a point where I stopped the crew at one of the watch changes where half the crew were then going down to sleep. The other half were coming up to be in full readiness with three of them at any one time on deck. And I remember standing there and there was all this um, uh, hot breath in the air. They're all bundled up in their gear. It's cold. Um, and uh, I stood at the bottom of the companionway and uh, looking at this, this large group of people that I know very well, which I care for very deeply, and saying to them, if anybody goes over the side now, I'm not coming back for you. Because to do so would be to risk the lives of the rest of the crew. And I think that was a point where my crew realized, wow, this is this is not canvas, not, not canvas, not Kansas anymore, Dorothy. This is not Kansas. Now this gets serious. You know, we're not doing uh, man overboard training in the Solent anymore. Someone goes over the back of this boat. It's it's the end for them. And uh, I think thinking in that way, you know, there's almost an element of it where it almost keeps you a bit safer because it makes you realize quite how steep that ramp of consequences is. Um, but if you're with a crew and you don't want to expose them to that that risk, 
having a life jacket on, being clipped onto the boat is the responsible thing that you do to show your respect for the other members of the crew. I, I still do not understand why people cannot put their life jackets on and keep them on. There's always this, or oh, can we take our life jackets off? Can we take our life jackets off? It's like, no, <laughs> you can't. And it was actually easier for me when I'm running a boat as a sail training vessel because then it's just a case of, no, you can't. I'm the captain and you can't take them off. And uh, luckily we've never had an instant where it's gone wrong. Matt fallen across the cockpit, probably the closest we've been of somebody losing their footing on the boat. And he was absolutely connected to the boat and never went near the edge. But it's um, on a smaller boat, on a 40 foot boat where, you know, if you've got a 40 foot boat and it's like 12 foot across and you've got a six foot long, well, not the six foot, how long are those tethers? Like one meter, aren't they? So like three foot long, but you've got six foot to fall. So you can be over the life rail very easily, but we can drag you back on by your tether. But if you're not connected, you're only like six foot, like a body length from being either in the boat or out of the boat. So you must wear your life jacket. We recommend that all safety equipment requirements should be expressly rewritten to emphasize that all crew members bear responsibility for acknowledging and enforcing requirements associated with good seamanship and that skippers expressly instruct their crews in this regard. I often say this to crews when I sail with them. If you see me without a life jacket, do not think that you can't say to me, hey, put your life jacket on. C, life sling training. Mm. The crew of the vessel initially used the jib halyard to try and recover Colin, even though the recovery was being executed from the transom, quite possibly due to the unresponsive nature of the person in the water. It was necessary for the recovery crew to be at sea level, making the transom a reasonable choice for a recovery. However, the exit angle of the jib halyard made it a poor choice in this regard. Choice of the jib halyard may have been influenced by safety at sea demonstrations showing recovery from amidships. Ultimately, the crew moved to the boat's main halyard for this purpose. Safety at sea trainers should consider focusing more heavily on lifting POBs back on board via a life sling, including choice of halyard, and to augment such training whenever possible to utilize equipment necessary to properly demonstrate such techniques. Um, uh, what can we say about this? Look, there's a reality in sailing that uh, a lot of people choose to just kind of like walk on by. Well, there's a couple of them. One of them is what are you going to do if you don't have a rudder? Uh, I sorry, if you don't, yeah, you don't have a rudder. You don't like the, the thing below the boat is gone, right? If the tiller's gone, okay, you may have an extra tiller you can put in there. You may have like the autopilot can be engaged or whatever. But if you lose the actual rudder off the bottom of the boat, I can remember doing so many races where they'd say, what are you going to do in the event of losing the rudder? And you'd say, oh, we're going to get the spinnaker pole and then we're going to drill holes in the floorboards and we're going to lash the floorboards to the spinnaker pole. Then we're going to put all of that over the starboard side of the boat at the back and we're going to steer the boat like it's a Viking longship. And they, the, the, the people that would come down to test for safety, they'd be like, yeah, okay, that's fine. It's like, clearly that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. Um, but I think until the, the, this, uh, the, this method with the, um, the, the drogue and the chain and the two ropes coming up to winches was fully tested by US Sailing a number of years ago and shown that you can really control the boat in that way, unless you've got experience of doing it yourself, it's basically kind of like a gray area, just kind of do a weather forecasting wave of the handover like yeah well we'll just you know we'll do whatever and we do a lot of emphasis on um getting the boat back to the people you know crash tacking the boat pressing the person overboard button mayday calls getting the kettle on getting the medical ready getting the uh, the boat hook ready all this stuff we do all of that but getting unconscious people back on boats is very hard i cannot underline that more it's very good now that clipper do this training with a full body weight uh, dummy um uh, with you know dressed up in in all the gear with a life jacket and everything else to get people to realize just how difficult it is particularly as colin's got extra weight on him 250 pounds 
Imagine it's, you know, somebody's birthday and they're 250, 300 pounds and you're going to pick them up and give them the birthday bumps. Like it's going to be hard yakking. You're going to need some big folks to do it. But now we're just going to pluck them wet out the water like it's no thing of at all. The, the, the situation here is that whatever unfortunately happened to, to Colin, his consciousness was lost as he was approaching the boat. I would still have a few question marks over is it definitely drowning? Is it? Is it? Has he had a, a coronary event or something as he's being pulled back to the boat? Who really knows apart from that doctor? He said it's drowning, so we'll go with that. But whatever it was, it had occurred by the time he was back at the back of the boat. When he got to the back of the boat, he's already had blue skin and was unresponsive. So we now just have someone who's unconscious. We need to get out of the water. The life sling things on the back of the boat is not like the best piece of life-saving equipment that everybody that we have worked out it is a compromised piece of equipment it's three pieces of foam wrapped up in uh, you know um, rubberized pvc with some polypropylene line attached to it for, for most people like for me on the boat that i'm on i've never even think to, to that i could get somebody out of the water with a life sling because clearly they don't have any method of uh, of securing the person in the life sling uh, if they're unconscious their arms are going to go in the air and they're just going to fall right out of the thing and we know this because, of course, this is why we've got crotch straps attached to our life jackets. That strap that comes up between your legs is specifically there to stop that thing going up over your uh, shoulders and up over your arms in the event that you're being lifted out of the water by it. Of course, a life sling is going to do the same thing, okay? Regardless, if you can keep somebody in the life sling, you then have the problem of how you're going to get them out of the water. And again, if you look at the instructions on the front of the life sling, it just shows like a block and tackle system and a boom and someone's just like, pulling them up like pulling them up okay so all right well what's that piece of equipment what what exactly is that piece of equipment what exactly are you going to do if you don't bring them to the to the, to the waist of the boat and get a halyard onto them how are you going to get them out of the water uh, if you can pull somebody onto the onto the stern step of the boat then okay um but if uh if that's not happening from my point of view with the vessels i work on it's absolutely cut and dried they must come up uh, at, at the shrouds they must do because it's the only way you can get a hallied onto them quickly and as you've dropped the jib before you got there or rolled away the jib the natural uh, thing is that the foredeck is open the foredeck is clear on bigger boats you can actually open the hatch and put someone straight inside the boat but on a smaller boat you can get them up you've got the rigging to hold on to you've got the diagonal rigging you've got the vertical rigging and there's lots of good things to clip onto there there's all sorts of ropes and halyards and it's a simple space to do a lifting task from the water. And at this point, let's just also all remember that when you cut your halyards so that you can uh, have the minimum possible rope in the cockpit, you have to have enough rope so that the jib shackle can reach the water and still have three wraps on the winch and enough to control the rope uh, out of the back of the winch. So you're still going to need another 60 centimeters plus at least three wraps on the winch, which takes a lot more rope than you think because it's a diameter and diameters are always much bigger than you think. And you're going to need to have that crew, that uh, snap shackle at the water because if that halyard has to be used for lifesaving, you cannot have it that it only reaches to the deck and then you're out of out of rope on in in the cockpit. You can't can't have that. It doesn't sound like that happened here, but. You know, just FYI, in fact, it must have been very long, this halyard, because it reached right to the back of the boat, which is great. But unfortunately, pulling it to the back of the boat is not the right thing. <clears throat> um, so I would um, say, you know, life, life sling is uh, 
a piece of equipment. It is not a helicopter strop. They don't lift you on those going up into a helicopter on a life sling. There's something that's a bit more evolved than that, which has a bit of a kind of draw on it so that um, it, it, as it's, it comes under tension, it kind of tightens up on you a little bit. Life sling doesn't have that. So just be very aware what that is. It's a compromised piece of equipment. It's slim. It's sitting there on the back of the boat. It looks kind of neat and tidy, but it is, doesn't mean that it's the best piece of equipment in the world for doing that job. It's just a compromise that will be most people, they're never going to use their life slings. They're never, ever going to unpack this piece of equipment. So they don't want to have too much really on the back of the boat. They just, you know, they want something that will do it if it has to do it. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't do it very well because of that. <clears throat> um, the next conclusion, training and equipment concerning unconscious uh, person overboard, we recommend that safety at sea training be updated to focus more heavily on methods for bringing unconscious POBs aboard and address the possibility that the POB is not wearing a PFD or harness. Further, we would encourage manufacturers of safety equipment to explore enhancements that may improve a crew's ability to recover an unconscious POB. <clears throat> so yeah, do we have something to... Rec well, they do. And of course, on all fishing vessels and uh, uh, on commercial vessels, you have to prove how you're going to get somebody up on site. It can be like a cargo net that goes over the side. There are de facto patented um, uh, recovery systems with a kind of like a, a, a sheet that runs down over the side of the boat and then a, uh, a bar on the opposite side of it that you get the person alongside the boat and then get a halyard or halyards onto that thing and pull them onto the boat. They're quite quite big, but a cargo net can be you know quite easily tucked away somewhere, but they don't ask for them on these races. And again, it's just one of those areas that we kind of go like, well, you know, we'll just kind of do stuff in the event of getting somebody back on the boat. It, getting them on the boat is the hardest bit, definitely, in all of this. Uh, additional training on external communications. Um, I'm not going to go into this too much because that's that's outside of what we talked about. Um, it says none of these difficulties materially affected the crew's ability to bring Colin back to the boat alive. Um, but you know what what they were using. They, there's a whole thing of that. The fact that the Iridium Go, which I have on my boat as well, was was keyed to Colin's phone, and they couldn't disconnect it from Colin's phone. If you didn't know this, the uh, the username and password on an Iridium Go is always guessed for the username and guessed for the password unless somebody's changed it. And I would say, don't change the thing on your Iridium Go. I know we're all kind of like, well, safety conscious and all the rest of it. Like someone's not going to suddenly like dial up, um, you know, the, the, the talking clock in Afghanistan and running up a massive bill. It's extremely unlikely to happen. But knowing there's at least one way and don't get too fancy about cutting on you know, the crew can't do this and people with this guest password, they can't make calls and the rest of it. In the event that something happens and, you know, people need to use the Iridium Go to connect with the outside world, it has to be easy to do. Um, uh, next recommendation, training regarding those MOM-8 units that we talked about, the man overboard modules. The crew did not deploy the MOM-8 unit and multiple members of the crew on watch stated that deploying this device did not occur to them. It appears that the crew discussed the use of the device before the race and that Colin mentioned it as a priority. However, deployment of the Marmite did not occur to the crew in this admittedly high pressure and for a period of time shorthanded situation. At least one crew member commented that they had never seen the Marmite unit deployed during their safety at sea training. This highlights a legitimate challenge within safety at sea training regarding the ability to demonstrate equipment that requires professional service after use. Going forward, we suggest that safety at sea trainers consider additional ways to demonstrate. So that's the problem. So you've got these units that inflate, and then um, it, it's saying that they need professional. They don't actually need professional service because they just need repacking somehow. As as long as that unit is never going to be on a boat in you know in a, an actual real world situation, 
it's like the life rafts that they use for training all the time they're not intended to go back on a boat and ever be used somewhere they're just ones intended for demonstration i think you can show those and the 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 thing that you use up is like a 32 gram uh co2 cylinder so it's not really like it's a big deal but um yeah if you've got stuff like that on the boat you should have seen it operating once in a while um but in this from what i can see of the unit right here in front of me on the computer mostly what it does is indicate the position of the uh, person in the water and then it gives you an inflatable alternative to a life sling neither of which would have really helped them in the situation they never lost contact with him so that the pole itself would have been redundant and they he fell out of the life sling he would have fallen out of the the uh, mom eight unit just as uh, as easily so nothing there that would have materially helped the situation uh, next next uh, conclusion here, uh, recommendation, training regarding availability of outside rescue assistance during this incident. It appears that the crew of the vessel for a period of time was led to believe that the U.S. Coast Guard would come to their aid. Regardless of what the Coast Guard may have told the crew of the vessel, we find it highly unlikely that the Coast Guard would have been of any assistance in this incident, given that the vessel was sailing several hundred miles off the east coast of the United States. For this reason, we strongly recommend that all safety at sea courses be reviewed and revised to reflect the realities of the Coast Guard's capabilities in this regard. We also recommend that all race organizers provide specific and realistic guidance to competitors. Here's the deal, you know, and there'll be a lot of pilots that know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Those helicopters, they can only come a couple of hundred miles offshore. Yeah, they can only come a couple hundred miles offshore. And when they do, they've got minimum time on 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 station. Now, if there's some kind of aircraft carrier or some kind of um, Coast Guard clipper that can launch a helicopter, that totally changes all of that. But the likelihood that they're just going to turn up and drop from the sky and rescue anybody is very, very low. So there may have been a miscommunication here that they thought that they were coming and then they're not. But, um, you know, whenever you go to sea, it's just you that electronic doodad that's going to get these people to come to you yeah, maybe it'll work but maybe it won't work quick enough for you don't ever think that going out to the sea is made safer these days by the equipment we have it gives us options it's an aid to safety in the same way that uh navionics is an aid to navigation the way that a radar is an aid to navigation it's an aid to safety that you have an epub it's an aid to safety that you have an ais beacon in your life jacket at the end of the day it's just you and the guys on board. And I guess what this uh, brings up... Oh, it's the next point. There we go. Training regarding rescue swimmers. Hmm. Okay, so this is something interesting. Mm, I'm going to come back to that one, I think. I'm going to leave that to the end here. At the safety at sea, the rescue swimmers. I'll finish up with that point because that's got a lot. Training regarding engine use. We recommend that safety at sea training and race organizer requirements be updated to include engine starting and use by mutable, mu multiple crew members. Look, it's one of those things in sailing that you never get your hands on the wheel to dock the boat or to park the boat or to maneuver the boat um, until you're already the captain or the owner, by which point it's uh, suddenly everyone's looking at you because they're not expecting you to hand over to them. Um, you have to let your crew drive the boat. You have to let the crew do this man overboard evolutions, park the boat, learn the boat. There's no way really of teaching exactly how you do a man overboard procedure because every single one is different. Same as there's no real way of teaching how to do uh, coming alongside the dock because really what happens is that you're just problem solving close to a dock. What happens with the person in the water is that you're problem solving close to a person in the water. I've done literally hundreds of man overboard trainings all on vessels bigger than 60 foot, which is maybe different from a 40 foot, but we just it's harder to see the person when they're close to the boat. There's a lot bigger risk of hitting them. Um, it's I've done hundreds and hundreds of them, and I've uh, you know I've driven over 
the 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 dummy in the water i have uh, got them wrapped around the propeller i have missed them by 100 feet by 20 feet i've hung out next to them and unable to slide sideways to get to them like i've made a lot of mistakes on this all you can do is problem solve close to the person in the water and the more chance you get to do that the better and i would say docking the boat is is something which is the most similar of anything you'll do so let your crew drive the boat um uh, spread the knowledge around and, and then in the event of something going wrong you've got multiple skill sets that can be applied to to solving the problem in this case it says the mom crew the the, the mariette uh, morgan of mariette crew did an outstanding job executing manoeuvre procedures absolutely they did but several of the crew were challenged by not being familiar with the engine. Skippers and crews should work together to ensure that all crew members know how to start a boat's engine when necessary. This training, review, documentation and practice of all standard operating procedures on board is particularly important when some sailors are new to the crew or to the boat. Yeah. Importance of safety briefings. Absolutely. Well, there's safety briefings upon safety briefings when you do the Newport Muda race. And uh, it sounds like uh, from the way that this went down, that they certainly had had lots of discussions. So we can say that to everybody else, though. It is important to have a safety briefing on your vessel. Uh, the appointment of a second in command. Generally, our training protocols do not contemplate the skipper falling overboard. Well, I've got to tell you, literally everybody that I can think of off the top of my head going over the side of the boat has been the captain. It, it would I don't know if there's any facts around that, but in my mind, in my recollection, there's a disproportionately large amount of skippers going over the side. And it's because they get overly comfortable with the boat they got complacent about the fact it's never gone wrong so it's never going to go wrong they're the one that can get out of the being told to put your life jacket on because no one's going to say it to them and then invariably they're the one that's trying to deal with the issue uh jumping into a situation and they end up going over the side of the boat so i would say that it is absolutely essential that uh the the, the captain is um uh you know has somebody else on board who's like in the hierarchical structure and can say to them you need to put your life jacket on because to me it's captains that go over the side so if it says that their training doesn't anticipate the skipper falling over the side let me tell you mine does it's very very important um, identification of crew members with medical training crews should and this is the last of these uh, ones we're going to double back to the rescue swimmer um, crews should endeavor to identify who among them are trained in first aid and medical procedures especially when a crew has not sailed together in the past uh, with the crew of this vessel acting with great skill it was not clear that they all had a strong understanding of each other's capabilities in this regard. While the crew of Mom acted with great skill, it was not clear that they all had a strong understanding of each other's capabilities. Yeah, Skippers and crews should together make sure they all have a shared understanding of medical capabilities on board. Look, at the end of the day, unless you're a professional sailor, unless you've got a life at sea, most people going to sea are taking some compromise of the fact it's not something that they often are. They're there for a short period of time. Their love, their passion, their skills take them out onto the water, but they're not necessarily like built for it. And you might not know who you've got there. You haven't got time to really bond together and understand everybody's skill set. Something that would have been available if you're working professionally or doing this over a long period of time in your life with a set group of people. So share knowledge. You certainly should know who's got the who the medics on board. Um, obviously, if you've got a pilot on board, they'll they'll tell you. So that's easy. Colin was washed overboard by a large wave. This is the conclusion. And I'm going to come back to the rescue swimmer thing after the conclusion. Right. And we are literally at the end of this. Colin was washed overboard by a large wave in inclement weather. We believe ultimately his death was caused by his failure to wear and deploy 
his PFD harness and tether, or life jacket and tether as we're going to refer to it. His crew acted admirably, absolutely, in returning and reconnecting him to the boat, but it appears that he drowned before they could get him back on the boat. All of us, says the report, can learn important lessons from this tragedy, and we have tried to offer this relatively simple set of findings and recommendations in the hope that they will be widely shared and understood by our community and that they can play a role in making our sport safer for all. And uh, there's a, Appendix A is the background of the people uh, who are on the board, who all, you know, this Ed Cesare here, uh, class 40, double-handed, regularly navigates for high-end programs, uh, 100,000 sailing miles offshore, uh, five of the world's great 600 milers, including 18 Bermuda races. And it goes on and on, you know, U.S. Sailing's Senior Vice President of Programs and Services, Leslie Crane, who I know from the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club. I've done uh, the his uh, A to B race up from Antigua to Bermuda. Um, Matt Gallagher is the uh, chair of the Offshore and Technology Division of U.S. Sailing has organized numerous local, regional and world championships in sailing. He skipped 10 Chicago Yacht Club races to Mackinac um, and has raced to the Great Lakes. Captain Jonathan Kaback, I hope I've got that name, name right, Captain, is the Chief Executive Officer of Oliver Hazard Perry, Rhode Island, and is the master of the SSV Oliver Hazard Perry. Jonathan is an internationally recognized expert on maritime training and education under sail, having sailed in command of vessels ranging from landmark tall ships to high-performance racing sailboats, maritime academy training vessels to luxury motor yachts. Okay, so we've got some very, very experienced people here. Um, I want to come back uh, to a couple of things here, though, with the rescue swimmer. So I got alerted to the fact that uh, people that I know were looking to uh, create a document about rescue swimmers. It'd be interesting to see how that um, fits into this. There is a feeling in this kind of situation that if you could get over the side and get to the person that... um, maybe you could have shortcutted this system and and got Colin back to the boat. So let's have a see. This is um, suggestion H, training regarding rescue swimmers. We recommend that safety at sea training be revised to specifically address when, if ever, to send a rescue swimmer into the water. The Morgan of Marriott crew specifically discussed this issue and wisely decided not to send a swimmer into the water given the conditions. However, we believe many crews might have made a different decision, especially given the emotional difficulties of seeing a fellow crew member struggling to live. We believe this topic needs more attention and discussion in our community. The problem is that Colin, unfortunately, on this circumstance, did not have his life jacket on. He wasn't tethered to the boat and an unexpectedly large wave struck the vessel on its side. It was a red flag that they had uh, so much main on, big seas coming in from the side of the boat it was a red flag that Colin didn't have his life jacket on. And then unfortunately, circumstances lined up and he went into the water. At that point, one of the crew, Colin, was in grave or imminent danger. And it was appropriate for them to, to issue a, a mayday and to be in, a, in, a, in what would be considered an emergency situation. If somebody else goes into the water, from a technical point of view, you now have two people overboard. Okay, two emergencies. The idea of having somebody go into the water when we've got eight to 10 foot seas. No, actually, let me just revise that because it was bigger than that. 12 to 18 foot seas. The water's quite warm at 72 Fahrenheit, 23 Celsius, we said. The wind's blowing over 20 knots. You cannot put somebody into the water like that. It is, it's immoral for a captain to make someone do that. It is highly, highly dangerous. 
And I think it was an excellent discussion, uh, discussed point and an excellent decision on their behalf not to do it. I think if you have someone who is specifically trained for that, I think if you have a method of dealing with their line and because they're going to swim away from the boat and they're going to be hopefully attached to a line or something so you can get them back. So if anything happens to them, you don't have two separate people in the water. It is possible to do something. Unfortunately, once Colin had lost consciousness and been face down in the water for a, an a, a amount of time that meant he wasn't going to come back, you do not put somebody in the water to go and rescue a body from the water. I'm, it sounds terribly harsh. And it says about the, the emotional difficulty of seeing a fellow crew member, it says here, struggling to live, but also in the water. So do, even if, you know, I did my Australian surf lifesaving um, uh, training, uh, the red and yellow caps, and uh, you, you reach throw, row, go. Okay, so first you'd reach out and try and get the person. Now I have on my boat one of those painter's poles with a, a boat hook swizzled into the end of it. The um, You can buy boat hooks that have the same thread on them as a painter's roller. And then you can get hold of those 16 or even 21 foot massively long poles that you can slowly pull somebody back to the boat with. Very important for me with the six foot uh, freeboarders I have on this vessel. Um, those things are very useful. Reach, you can throw something to them. Um, they, they had essentially thrown the, the, the life sling and Colin had got hold of it. So reach, they'd done throw. If you've got a little boat that you can row over to them, do they have a dinghy? Is there some kind of dinghy on board here? Can we get a, a, a life raft or something involved in this if the person's still in the water? But do not go into the water. If you possibly, possibly can help it, do not go into the water. It is extremely dangerous. So I think that they made a series of excellent decisions and unfortunately, due to the fact that this thing had happened and uh, he was in the water, either through the drowning process that the uh, doctor put us onto there, and we learned about this instinctual drowning response and the fact that it can look just like they're quite calm, but they're actually, they are drowning, or indeed that he had some kind of uh, heart issue as he's being pulled back to the boat. Either way, unfortunately, Colin um, wasn't able to be recovered alive, but I think everything else they did was absolutely excellent. And I think this report from US Sailing and from this panel is, is fantastic as well. And I, I, I say again, I share this here um, in, an, in an effort to try and get this kind of information out there as much as possible. Attitude to life jacket. If there's anything other than, uh, you know, you put on a, a, a seatbelt in your car and you put on a life jacket on the boat. And that's just the end of that. That's how that is. Um, when it's 20 knots and you've got a full main and you're on a beam reach and you're doing 8, 10 knots and the wind's blowing up to 20 knots, uh, you know, you should be clipped on. That's just how that is. That's what led to this, unfortunately. And then we don't know exactly what happened in the water, but clearly it probably wasn't helped by uh, Colin's age and his weight and uh, maybe his fitness level. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was unfortunate that he then um, wasn't able to to make it through to uh, give us his perspective and, and the things that he would change on his boat afterwards. But I think what U.S. Sailing done is decanted this down into um, uh, a simple to understand document, which is available on the U.S. Sailing website. Um, you can find it anywhere. And uh, it's uh, really, actually, I'll put a link to it in the description for the podcast, of course, sorry. So you can read it for yourself. But um, yes, I my heart goes out to the crew of the vessel and of course to, um, uh, to, to Colin's wife, uh, Sabine, I believe. And uh, it's terrible that this has happened. As soon as we heard, uh, Sabina, sorry, Colin's wife. And um, as soon as we heard about this in the fleet, we kind of couldn't believe it because um, U.S. Sailing and uh, the uh, New York Yacht Club do such a good uh, job to make sure that, um, and the Bermuda Yacht Club and the Storm Trisel Club and everybody else uh, does such a fantastic job to try and make these events as safe as possible. But um, 
on this occasion unfortunately this is this has happened and i think if we can learn from it and take those into the future your spider senses should be tingling that's what i take away from this um and and and, and you know what the other thing is um i don't care if he's the captain i don't care if he's the most experienced person on board i don't care if he's a volvo guy or whatever yeah you tell him put your life jacket on because they're putting you at risk if you have to go back and get them. And if they're any kind of a decent person, they'll say, you're right. And if they say, I don't need it, well then, now you know who you're sailing with, right? Sailing always ends up showing you who a person really is and uh, they're not not too smart if they um, if they if they don't accept, accept that advice to put a life jacket on when conditions are like that. So um, I hope that from this, we can remember to, uh, for Colin's sake, clip on and uh that we never had anything like this happen again in this fantastic event um if there's any discussion or points people want to bring to me with this of course it's csm the mariner at gmail.com um i hope that wherever you are uh this you've learned something from this and you can remember that thing we say at the end i hope that you are safe and sound that the crew are safe the vessel is sound we learn more each time how to make that happen when we when we investigate these accidents and and bring out the learning and then say those spider senses start tingling when you see the wind over 20 knots and someone's not got a life jacket on you've got a full mane and you get them clipped on to stay clipped on and it's all going to be a lot easier so be safe be sound and i'll meet up with you in the next one cheers